I, you know, I follow your show every day and I admire what you do. Oh, right back at you, man. Thank you. That's very appreciated. You know, it's good to hear a positive look at things. And, you know, sometimes we forget that there's good news going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, yeah, conservatives, we tend to, we tend to, uh, we're prone to despairing. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think because we're, re- uh, that's the way David Horowitz put it. I had David Horowitz yeah. on a couple of weeks back and he says conservatives are realists. So we, we, yeah, we're, we have no problem being pessimistic. We're not utopianists or anything like that. I, I thought that was pretty good. No, that's a good insight. Okay. We got Steve Turley here, Charles Moskowitz. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Uh, Steve is the host of Turley Talks. He is one of the preeminent intellectuals right now on the world scene with regard to uh, the national, what you describe as a nationalist populist, uh, traditionalist movement and how things are going. Now, Steve, um, first of all, thanks for joining me as always. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, Charles. Love being on your show. You know, I look to your YouTube sh- show every single day. When I go out for my vigorous walk in these pandemic times, I put my earphones on and I listen to you first. Oh, and, uh, you know, it's very bracing in terms of putting things in in a good context of what's going on and things that we can feel positive about. Not that everything, not that you look at life through rose colored glasses by any means, right. but, but you know, we need to take stock of where we are in these times and, and where we're going. And, um, you know, I think you do a very good job of it. Um, firstly, I mean, the news today, I mean, I feel discouraged over what the news emanating out of the Supreme Court what the hell has happened to, to Amy Coney Barrett? <clears throat> we will have to see. I, I, uh, I mean, this is this is Antonin Scalia's, you know, protege. I mean, uh, we're going to have to see what's going on. I have no idea. Dick Morris has an interesting take on it. He he thinks the court is intimidated by the Democrats' threat to pack it. Yes. I don't know if I'd buy that per se. Uh, so in other words, they're just trying to stay silent, and not make any waves, stay out of the news. I don't know about that. We'll have to see. Oh, just the latest with Mike Kelly's case uh, and the Act 77 um, violation that basically the Pennsylvania Supreme Court engaged in, which was a blatantly unconstitutional legislating from the bench. I mean, they they filed that case what was it uh september october before the election right and they were told by sam alito uh that unfortunately we're not going to have this the court's not going to have the time to be able to deliberate over this before november 3rd so so you could read it it's online sam alito it's about a four page response to uh mike kelly's uh you know case saying that uh, uh, alleging that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had acted, had violated the Constitution, the, the federal Constitution, in, in basically interfering in the election in terms of determining the time, place, and manner of election, which alone belongs to the uh, Pennsylvania legislature. And and uh, Alito said, yeah, it looks like they certainly did that. So we're going to have to visit this after 
the election. So it's like we, the citizens, are doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And then just the elites say, no, never mind. So yeah, that's what you're upset with, in case you're just listeners to know. I mean, I mean, then we get the Supreme Court coming out and say, oh, never mind, a 6-3, and, uh, 6-3 decision. Eh, never mind. We're not even gonna we're not even gonna take a look at it this case because now it's a moot point because because Trump won. Well, I mean Trump lost. Uh, it's not a question of it being a moot point for 2022 or 2024. Right. And it's also a basic constitutional question. They're not supposed to look at that. I mean, Article 2, Section 3 says that the state legislators shall regulate elections. It's pretty black and white. And I think that uh, who knows what the thinking is other than obvious sheer politics. If they obviously, if they, if they came in with a judgment that supported the uh, Pennsylvania legislature and thus moving forward supports all state legislators in their reassumption of their constitutional prerogative to make election law. In the immediate sense, that could affect the outcome of the Pennsylvania election. And that could perhaps bring into question the election itself. We have to be careful here. This is YouTube. Let's watch what we say in these somewhat oppressive times. You know, this is like a third world banana republic. You can't criticize an election anymore. You know, the, the government, the people that have assumed power, they, you know, you can't look back and, and say anything. So I, I want to use somewhat euphemistic language here. What, but, well, why don't we call it, we'll call it Russiagate. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, right. That'll be our code. That'll be our code word for it. We could talk about it all day. Oh, yeah. And, and of course, now we're being, we'd be called conspiracy theorists. I just got into this. <laughs> when the biggest conspiracy theory hatched in the past five years was that Donald Trump was spying for Russia. You know, talk about nutcase. And also that Donald Trump sent in the guy in the Buffalo suit to interrupt Congress because he wants to stop the count and overthrow the government, right? I mean, these are conspiracy theories. It was it's exactly it's 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 a great point. And, and you know, look, I got to tell you, Charles, um, I uh, interviewed uh, Daniel Miller uh, a few weeks back. Right. Daniel Miller is uh, the president of the uh, Texas Nationalist uh, Association. Is it? Uh, uh, he, he's been doing that now for my almost three decades, and um, and this is what fuels Texas. It's precisely what the Supreme Court did. When I talk to you know our members of our Insiders Club and all that sort of stuff. Uh, when I when they see Washington D.C. in the swamp look totally irredeemable, you know, when we work so hard to get Kavanaugh on that Supreme Court, we defend him, we stand by him, and then he gets up there and he's, you know, Anthony Kennedy Part Two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just throw up our hands and just, and that's when I hear people say, "We've had it, we've had it, Texas all the way, let's go." It's irredeemable. So this is, I mean, I think all this is doing in the end is it's just exacerbating the um, the, the gap that exists between the people and the political class. And you don't want to exacerbate that anymore because my heavens, if you do, I mean, that's really, that's when people start splitting away from, from the political class big time. Again, we're seeing it all over the world. That's right. Uh, yeah, we're seeing it here as well. And so we have essentially the political class reasserting and reassuming the positions literally of power, not that they didn't ever leave the high ground of culture, 
And uh, they seem to be consolidating things right now. I mean, we have uh, the hearings with uh, Merritt Garland, where he's talking about uh, persecuting people because of systemic racism. I mean, I thought we have enough laws in this country already to address, you know, discrimination and should have them. I'm not against that, but he doesn't define what he means by that. And that's opening the door to all kinds of greater government interference in people's lives. And nothing is not nothing much is said about that. We've got an assistant secretary of uh, health and human services. We have to be careful on this topic, not to go too deep, but giving a green light to giving various drugs to minors so that they can claim to be something other than who they are. Again, let's use euphemisms here. This is YouTube, we're gonna get banned. Um, and, and so I only bring these two points up to bring to illustrate the point that the, the ruling class, the establishment, the, what President Trump accurately called the deep state, they are beginning to take their positions in power again, and they're beginning to exercise that power in a way that reflects their own rather hybrid and quirky worldview that is contrary to not only you know, average Americans, but common sense. So my question to you, Dr. Steve Turley, is should we view this as the last gasps of a ruling elite who are just clinging to power and who are taking draconian steps or are they really going to be able to reassert this kind of power and really snuff out uh, opposition? Yeah, uh, well, I think it's probably in the middle there. So I do think this is a last gasp, but that's that's the scholarship that's out there right now on the, uh, the near implosion of globalism is really pretty impressive. Um, and this is a scholarship that fully recognizes that they can have a few more cycles of, of electoral successes and the like, no question. But we are, it's almost, it feels like we're in the 1970s in the Soviet Union and, and people are just starting to openly talk, you know, maybe th there's another way of doing things here behind the Iron Curtain, they're saying this. And of course, it didn't take long for, for things to fall. I like I like the example of the uh, Czechoslovakian dissidents, Václav Havel and Václav Benda. So Václav Havel actually went on to, to be uh, president of uh, the Czech Republic or prime minister, I forget which one. Um, and they were arguing for something called a parallel police back in the 1970s during the Soviet era, era in, the, in Czechoslovakia. And, and, uh, and the argument of a parallel police was that in, in the midst of a civilization where the basic structures are completely redeemable and, um, and are, are corrupt to the core, it's incumbent upon the citizens who wanna live in truth to create their own parallel structures, to create their own, in effect, parallel society where they can live in truth. Now, this is the way that we're talking in the Soviet Union. And as you know, Charles, this is the way people are talking today. Everyone, this is what alt tech is all about. This is what the alternative media is all about. This is what talk radio was all about in many respects. So uh, this is what, you know, they're even talking about, you know, creating our own servers, creating our own banks. Ben Shapiro was just talking about that the other day. Ben's uh, currently involved in 
and creating his own uh, productions company with right. uh, with Gina Carano and so on. So whenever it seems to me, at least historically, you're hearing significant talk about, you know what, we're going to live out truth in parallel structures. We're going to create our own networks and we're going to pretend like this corrupt nonsense is not even not even there. Within 10 years, the whole thing fell apart. The corrupt nonsense, that is, it fell apart. So I think we're seeing similar processes going on here where we just we know what the future is. The future is conservatism, it's nationalism, it's populism. I mean, this this is what Ronald Reagan embraced. I mean, you said there's no the Soviet Union is not gonna get in the way of this. And if I could paraphrase him, AOC ain't gonna get in the way of this. Right. Uh, it is it, it is at the very it's heart natural. of what it means to be human. It's because yeah, it's, so, it's normal, it's natural. People are it's, going it's, to operate it's in It's normal. It's, na- it's a natural order of things, of nation and culture and custom and and tradition and the like. And, and that's how, you know, that's how people are liberated and that's how people end up uh, experiencing the, the most flourishing life at family and faith and community and freedom. So I do, I think, and we're in a civilizational crisis. It's really scary. In other words, this is not just a financial crisis we're in or just a structural crisis or anything like that. No, we're really in a civilizational crisis. We're, we're at the end of a, you know, liberal globalist modernist experiment that basically has three centuries of history to it. And we're moving more into a postmodern, localist, nationalist, populist outworking. Of and but in the meantime, yeah, they're going to do everything they can, to, just like they did in the Soviet Union, to prolong their uh, their rule. Remember that the Soviet Union didn't fall until two years after the Berlin Wall. It take this this is stuff that takes time, and so. I do. I think they're going to be. I think they're going to be incredibly nasty. I mean, I think we could already see that. Oh yeah, for sure. They're, they're going to be so nasty. I mean, the, the cancel, yeah. it's a cancel culture knows no end. Cancel culture knows no end. And ultimately, uh, Charles, we know they want to cancel Western civilization. In the end, that's that's the ultimate canceling. That's what all the the Frankfurt School, the uh, Herbert Marcuse and all those guys in the 1960s. That's mm-hmm. the ones who will push this cultural Marxism. That's what they were pushing for. And so all these miniature cancelings that we're getting are all just for that ultimate canceling. So they're going to be really, really nasty. And it's going to be pretty, pretty horrid. Mm-hmm. But I think the winds are on our backs and we can keep going and they're going to do everything they can. But in the end, I don't think I don't think they can stop this 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 uh this new age of conservatism and traditionalism and so forth any more than the soviet union could or or nazi fascism could i just don't i think any modernist experiment that stands in the way of it is going to ultimately collapse because its roots aren't there anymore right i mean i agree although the the price that we pay in the process of their attempt to control people that could be horrendous. It could be war. It could be holocausts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is like the, as you mentioned, the National Socialist Experiment. Yeah. These are things that are unnatural impositions by this elite left-leaning, in that case, radical left establishment. 
And what you're describing, Steve, kind of reminds me a little bit of Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's novel, right? I don't know if you read it, but I read it years ago. I'm not a big, big, you know, Ayn Randian now, but I went through a phase with that probably 20 years ago. And, and she talks about people dropping out and creating an alternative culture in the mountains of, of, of Colorado, this, this Atlantis, and that good people, conscious people, you know, productive people started to disappear one after another until there was no one left and the whole thing imploded. And uh, I don't know if we can look at a dystopian situation in the literal sense, but sometimes something that has a science fiction element can have a lot of truth to it. And what you're describing is that we're creating alternative venues. We're creating, I mean, you've done a good job of showing, for example, on, on big tech, how we can post our videos on Rumble and on Minds, something that I do now routinely. And uh, there's Gab, um, you know, I've heard the CEO of Gab being interviewed and he's talking about millions of people signing up. They were ha they had their bank account taken away. You can't get it anymore. You have to send them an old fashioned check to get on Gab. But <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. And I think that you see this gradually happening, as you say, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, I mean, Coca-Cola now, people are going to start to boycott it because of a recent comment they made that, that what is it, that we're not white enough or that we're too white or some racist comment. Suddenly people, you know, the woke crowd, I mean, suddenly people are like, okay, fine, to heck with Coke. I'm not suggesting we do that, by the way, but I'm just simply pointing out that we are becoming more conscious of, I mean, I guess in a way it kind of also reminds me of the late great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in which in his last speech before he was murdered, he tried to point out to the black community that they have a greater economic footprint than most third world countries. And that it's yeah. not, you know, they can patronize businesses that support what they believe in and not patronize those that don't. And that this was, he saw a peaceful way, a nonviolent way of bringing about racial justice in the real meaning of the term, not in a phony left winger. Sure. And uh, so maybe that's what's going on. In a way, we're involved in the in today's civil rights movement, a reassertion of individual rights, of faith, of, of the American political philosophy that rights come from God and not from the state. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, scholars are talking about consumer politics a lot uh, and, and that they're huge now. I mean, consumer politics it was just a marginal issue, say, 30 years ago, and now it's almost become central. You have to actually, in many respects, any kind of business model is going to have to take consumer politics as, as part of its, uh, to take it into consideration as part of its business model. Consumer politics, bottom line, is, is the increasingly plausible notion for more and more people that they can vote with their wallets. And they can and they can pursue and uh, indeed promote their political values, their cultural values through uh, through the various different uh, patronizing activities they have with businesses. And that involves boycotts and boycotts. Boycotts, obviously, is we're not going to patronize a business 
that uh, that you're, like what you're mentioned with with Coca-Cola. For some people, they're not going to want to buy it anymore because they hear they're they've gone all woke, woke, woke Coke. I guess we can put that yeah. together. And, it's not and, and then it has boycotts. OK, well, then that's you know, that's a great opportunity for Pepsi to come out and say, well, you know what? We're going to come out with a special, you know. Uh, Patriot pop or something like that to to celebrate our values and people were galvanized by that. They you are. know, obviously Chick Fil A was at the center of the culture wars. Yeah, they had a huge impact, and same thing with Mike Lindell. About Mike Lindell, Mike gigantic. One of your again, did you see Alan Dershowitz is going to uh, represent him against um, against Dominion? Oh, excellent. And, yeah, yeah. And by the way, I mean, not to get in, we have to be careful on that subject. Yeah, I know. I, know. I, I would simply note that a very well-known attorney by, with, you know, a female attorney, we know who I'm talking about, has said to them, bring it on because now we can get discovery. Ah, yes, get yes. In the courtroom. So now we can finally get to the truth. We don't want to talk about that because then people, you know, that's a no-no. That's a um, no-no, exactly. You know, until until the day then the courtroom opens up and then we'll be able to talk about it big time. That's right. Uh, there you go. Steve, what I want to get into a little, uh, talk about the horse race, the upcoming midterm. We see Republicans um, being demonized who tried to stand up for a legitimate airing of voter irregularities and the whole thing got shut down by the guy in the Buffalo suit. Um, we see Republicans like Mitch McConnell becoming further to the left. He's totally sold out conservative values because he's in. He has a six-year term. He's not going to be primaried. People like Susan Collins, you know, these people are, they, they can do whatever the heck they want, and they're showing their true colors now. Um, I, I, I'm concerned about the possible split in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. We've got President Trump speaking at CPAC this weekend, I think. That's going to be a, an interesting uh, development there. There's talk about President Trump starting a, an alternative uh, you know, social network. I, I understand that Don Jr. has been in conversation with Elon Musk about this. Um, there are some interesting developments, but they're developments that could render the Republican Party a, a, into a split. And how do you think, do you think that's happening? And if it's happening, how might that affect the, the midterm coming up in a matter of months? Yeah, you're right. I know. Literally months. Yeah, we're always campaigning here, aren't sure, we? Sure. So, yeah. Okay. So, so you have to see it at a couple of different levels. So at one level, just the party itself. And the party itself, of course, is going through a, a major rupture with the two major factions of the party. One faction is the, the grassroots party. They're the MAGA party, the part of the party, they're the, they're the deplorables. And they make up, you know, good 75, 80, 85% of the party. And then the other side is the establishment rhino Republican, Republican name only, and uh, th they make up the leadership. So, so they balance each other out in a sense. And there is a clash going on. And up to this point, as I understand, Mitch McConnell supports any candidate that's got the cash. So as I understand it, Mitch McConnell 
is a is a is a dollars based strategist. If you've got the money, this is why you pick Loeffler over other candidates in Georgia, if because she has money. If you've got money, I'm behind you because we'll be able to we'll be able to overwhelm our opponents by outspending them. And a lot of pundits are saying that doesn't work anymore. Obviously, Trump proved that in 2016, you know, when he right. got outspent yeah. two to one. That yeah. doesn't work anymore. What works now is movements and excitement. And that's what we're seeing on the left with like a BLM or Antifa or something akin to that. And what we're seeing on the right with MAGA and the deplorables is just the excitement of being part of a movement is what gets people to the polls. So with that, I do think all the energy is behind Trump right now. Even Romney just admitted that the other day. Hmm. All the energy is behind Trump. He came out of the, of the second impeachment, this ridiculous charade. He came out of that stronger than ever. We saw a 14-point jump in a matter of just a couple of weeks between uh, asking the very same question, do you think you know the party should be like Trump or should it move away? 14-point jump in favor of the party ought to be like Trump. It went from 40% to 54%. That's some, that's some pretty overwhelming support there. So he knows it. He knows nationalist populism is the wave of the future. That's what you know, he's, a, he's a visionary. They're talking to Elon Musk. Elon Musk has gotten red-pilled of late. My, oh, my, has he gotten red-pilled. Oh, yeah, sure. Now, now Mr. Texas and all that good yeah. stuff. So... Um, Absolutely. I think that is that is great, but it's the it's going to clash with the establishment. So this is what made Reagan brilliant. Uh, Reagan was able to balance out the sort of the increasingly populist um, uh, uh, grassroots with the, you know, the Ford Bushite leadership establishment. Mm -hmm. He was able to calm them. He he was originally seen as just a you know a a Barry Goldwater lunatic at first, right, right, sure. and and then uh, George Bush Senior helped to placate that when he chose him as his running mate, and he was able to balance it out. Apparently, from from uh, the the research I've read, this is kind of the genius of Putin and how he's been able to stay in power for so long. As you have a, a very populist. Russian population and a very globalist Russian oligarchy in, in power. And he was, he's been able to find a way of balancing out that too. Uh, then Bush Sr. comes uh, into power and he goes totally, you know, rhino establishment. And so the, the populists, well, many of the populists went with Ross Perot in 92, you know, so the populist grassroots. And then George W. Bush did the same thing. He went full neocon. And then in 2016, um, Ma Mr. MAGA himself comes in, Trump, and he freaks out the establishment by going fully, fully populist, fully pop, Twitter and all, and good yeah. stance. So the question is, if we don't find someone who can balance that out like Reagan can, the, the, the deplorables, grassroots versus the neocon establishment somebody can who can ride the two like you know two wings of a of a plane yeah we risk we we're, we're we may have some issues there so that's one level and then the simply the other level is just the natural organic movement of the midterm for uh for the for the the 
party that's outside of White House power to pick up seats if they are subpar, if they're 50 under 50 percent in approval, which Biden will be. I mean, he's already he's barely above 50 and yeah. Rasmussen. Um, then then we tend to pick up 40, you know, upwards of 30 to 40 seats. It's going to be it's going to be a bloodbath. So it'll be very organic in that sense. And that might be able to make up for any kind of problems that we have, at least, I think, uh, whoever's not happy with the result of the primaries that gets made up by a lot of independent voters who just naturally go to the opposition party in the in the midterm. So so, yeah, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to take away from the the possibility of party fracturing. I, and I but I don't think it's going to be as bad as it, because in the end, the the establishment rhinos know they need the deplorables in order to stay into power. They know that. So they're going to have to they're going to have to work that out in some way. I mean, even Pence and, and Trump seem to have reconciled a bit in their in their meeting uh, a couple of days back. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's a complex situation. We'll know more as it plays itself out. I'm, I am really looking forward to the CPAC speech. I have to say oh, that. I know. That's interesting. And uh, I think that, as you say, just on by the facts on the ground, if you look at the history of this, the Republicans are going to take back the House in, in two years and, and Pelosi will be gone and, you know, We'll, we'll, we'll be at least moving if, if there can be some reasonable coalition of, of all sides in the party to do that. And, um, right. yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, now the um, the Texas situation, the, the blackouts, the, um, you know, the, the grid collapse. I mean, I see this as similar to Katrina. And, you know, but Trump, but uh, Biden is not going to be held to that standard. Um, and uh, and yet, I think there's evidence. I talked to an expert the other day. This guy's a former Trump uh, uh, official in the Treasury Department, who said that uh, Biden put a cap on the uh, the amount of of energy any state can use over a certain amount, and did not allow for that to be um, mitigated in this emergency. And so the state could not. Plus, the state we find out has over 10% of its energy from wind and solar. It's probably more alternative energy than my own state of Massachusetts. So I think that this is the kind of thing that we need to have a vigorous investigation over to find out what policies might have led to the suffering that's gone on in that state. Um, Steve, I just want to wrap up by asking you, because you're in touch with the international scene. You're in touch with what's going on in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in touch with Brexit. You're looking at uh, Italy with their separatist movement, Hungary with Orban. Where do we stand in terms of the growth of the idea of the progressive idea of the nation state and of the assertion of nationalism around the world? I mean, China, we could look at Hong Kong, et cetera. Yeah, it's still more powerful than ever in many respects. Again, uh, they're bracing in Europe right now, particularly in Hungary, they're bracing for a big Brussels blowback, uh, a globalist blowback like we got here. That's the way they're they're reading what's going on in the States. They, they see an empire strikes back kind of structure uh, going on there, a drama playing out. And yeah. they're a little worried about that happening in the nationalist populist governments and Hungary and Poland. 
but as we speak, for example, Italy is uh, they're going through what they're called what's called a technocratic uh, government, and that's in specific to Italy, where if the parties can't get along, they actually bring in non-party actors. They tend to be bankers. They tend to be EU bureaucrats, uh, uh, and they they have they're temporary custodians until things can get worked out. And that's the kind of government they have right now. And it looks like the nationalist populist right. If they were to have next time they have snap elections, they're going to win overwhelmingly. They're they're growing by leaps and bounds. And you're seeing it as well as in France. Uh, Macron is just continues to struggle, even though he's moved solidly to the right, particularly in areas of uh, the the problem of uh, Islamic communities that have never integrated into French society and values. And he's right. really cracked down on them. But it doesn't seem to be enough to sway the surge in the polls with Marine Le Pen of National Rally. So there, there was some fascinating movement going on. Portugal just got their first nationalist populist party. Portugal for a long time was one of the only party, uh, only nations in Europe next to like Iceland or um, that, that didn't have a, a nationalist populist party. Now they've got one that just won in their elections around 10 to 12% of the, po the popular vote. And that's exactly what we saw with, for example, the rise of Lega in Italy or, um, or, or the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland and uh, in Germany or the uh, Swedish Democrats. And so you, st you see them start around a 10% mark and then that's all they need to enter in. And be before you know it, they're starting to get into the 17, 20, 25%. These of course are multiple parties. So that's a huge number in these parliaments, representational parliaments. So we're seeing India, of course, uh, the Narendra Modi government, Modi, yeah. very, very popular and, and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. So mm -hmm. it's pretty impressive stuff. The nationalist populist drumbeat keeps going. It's, pretty, it's still very strong. May take a little bit of a setback here and there, like all movements do. You know, yeah. as far as the left was concerned, they thought many people thought they were dead after Jimmy Carter. Ha ha, right? You right. know, so right. just you just got to keep plugging away and trust that the wind's at your back. And uh, it looks like we're doing pretty well. In a way, we have to be counter Fabians. Yeah, there you right. go. I like that. That's Steve, right. so tell my let my audience know where they can listen to your excellent program and any websites you'd like to share. Oh, thanks, Charles. They can go to my website, turleytalks.com. It's my last name, T-U-R-L-E-Y, talks, like tedtalks.com. Or just punch in my name, Dr. Steve Turley, on YouTube or uh, Rumble or Parlor. Welcome back, Parlor, right? Yep. And, uh, yep. and Minds and and uh, Gab and uh, a bit shoot. So we're on all the alt texts as well. And also um, you could go to our website and check out uh, if you like podcasts, we have a place you can find all our different podcasts. All right, excellent. Listen, Steve, I wanna thank you for joining me as always. And let's do it again soon. Absolutely, Charles.